Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the show that helps you grow a daily life that matters. I'm Lisa Jo Baker, and this is part of our holiday series where we're going back into the vault to share with you some of our favorite holiday episodes from the past five years. And now, with Christmas right around the corner, I want to introduce you to one of my own personal angels. Because at a time of year when our thoughts turn toward angels and miracles, Christy and I thought you might enjoy the reminder that the angelic and the miraculous have always shown up in unexpected places to the least expected people. So here's your reminder, friends, to keep your eyes open for angels this season. They might look like the least expected people on the hardest days. And this, friends, is how the light of Christmas gets in. Get comfy. Here we go. Lisa Joe, I know in these conversations, you often talk about your your boys and your kids who do sports. And so we know that you're, you know, sports is a big part of your family. But you always talk about yourself as if you're not, you know, like this is a whole new world and you're doing it for the kids. But I feel like I've heard some hints from you that suggest you were not always the... The, the couch potato, the, okay. you can say it. <laughs> I was trying to find a nicer way to say, yeah, couch potato, the Netflix watching, you know, candy snack enjoying, Lisa yep. Joe, we know and love today. <laughs> I know, you got to dig deep for those stories. You want me to go deep, deep down when in my former life, I was a high school track star. How crazy is that? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my children still don't believe it, I think, but it is true. I tell them, where do you think you got your running abilities from, children of mine? <laughs> you got them from me. I know this is a story about a high school girl whose mom was sick and who ran track and formed a completely unlikely alliance <laughs> with a very gruff coach. <laughs> It feels like the beginning of a Disney movie set up somehow. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, maybe. It's, is this a Friday night special, Lisa Joe? <laughs> I know. I know. It is the strangest story to think back on. It's one of those stories that bubbles to the surface for me every now and again with such warmth and tenderness because I had a coach in high school. I remember his name vividly. It's funny how certain high school teachers imprint on you. And you can remember their names and what they looked like. Maybe you don't always remember the conversations, but they're a character in your story. And Mr. O'Kelly was a character in my story that at 45, I remember him. I can see him as vividly as when I was 16. Wow. He was a really big man. Like when you think of the story of the Billy Goats gruff, for somehow like that association I have with him. He was this sort of giant man. Like think about, you know, in South Africa, we would say a rugby player, but in the American context, picture a linebacker, you know, football linebacker, really big, like beefcake of a man, dark black hair. And he had like this giant mustache too, this like really big <laughs> black mustache. He's <laughs> such a great character. You know, you just want to write him. You want to paint him. And um, he was also just very gruff. He was very offer cons. So I went to an English speaking high school. 
But in South Africa, language just plays a really big role. We have 11 national languages. And at the time when I was in high school, it was under the apartheid government. So Afrikaans was the ruling language. Even though we were English speaking, we were required to learn Afrikaans at school. Afrikaans in many ways was the language of oppression growing up. And Mr. O'Kelly was Afrikaans. He spoke Afrikaans in class a lot. He, I mean, he would swear at the students in Afrikaans <laughs> during <laughs> practices. <laughs> he was like not genteel, okay? He was the gruffest of the gruff. Kids were scared of him. I, I try to think, did he actually teach a class? I'm trying to remember. Like he was the coach, but I think he taught shop, like woodworking. Do you call it, is that what you call it here? Shop? We do. And I'm just thinking... Of course, Mr. Kelly taught shop. Of course. That's too yes, perfect. Of course he did. Of course he did. So Mr. O'Kelly taught shop, had his giant black mustache. I remember him just hanging outside his classroom. Now, South African schools, you have to picture if you're from California, maybe this is more familiar, but our schools were not enclosed. So it wasn't just a building with hallways between the classrooms. Instead, it was more like a row of classrooms, and then you would walk outside, and they were connected by outdoor corridors. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so you would you were outside in the sunshine in between classes. There was no air conditioning. There was no heat because South Africa's weather is just beautiful most of the year round. And I remember Mr. Kelly would stand outside his woodworking shop classroom in the sunshine in between classes as kids were moving between the classes, smoking a cigar (laughs) 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 and like yelling at kids. Okay. So clearly, I don't think this behavior would be the same today, like 30 years later. But at the time, it was like a total boys club kind of dude, right? Like he worked with the guys, he taught rugby, he did shop, he was scary. Like that is all you needed to know about him. Well, I came to spend time with him because he also took over coaching track. And at the time, I was running track. And he was this intimidating force in my life who was very, very hard on his runners, but we always knew he had our backs and he saw something in me as a runner and he was determined to foster that, to nurture that as a coach. And he was a really challenging coach. He expected a lot out of his runners and he made me believe that I was capable of being great as a runner. And so my life at the time was a very strange juxtaposition between my mom being sick and away in hospitals, like a good hour from our house, and then being a high school student, you know, like it was this very weird mash of grief and doctors and terrible news over and over again. And then, you know, showing up at school and girls worrying about, you know, is my hair cute? Can I wear lip gloss? You know, and am I going to be able to make the track team this year? This weird world that I lived in, and I didn't always know how to straddle it. I felt like two different people. But Mr. O'Kelly was a place where I felt safe, where I felt seen, where I felt capable, where I felt strong and powerful. All the things I didn't feel when we had arrived at my mom's hospital room, and because she had leukemia, what leukemia does is it kills all of your healthy blood cells. And leukemia is cancer really of the bone marrow. So that impacts your immune system. And so because my mom was so vulnerable to getting sick, before we came in to see her, we had to sanitize everything. We had to rub sanitizer all over our hands. We had to wear masks and gloves. We had to put little you know, boot coverings over our shoes. We couldn't touch her a lot. We couldn't hug her a lot. We couldn't breathe on her. It was this very sterile, quiet, non-physical environment. 
But when I ran track, it was fast and brutal and hot and sweaty and physical. And as all good stories do, I am learning this as I tell you the story. I had never quite understood the difference between those two places. And track also became a place that my dad and I could connect outside of connecting around a dying mom or my responsibilities of making dinner for my brothers when I was 16. He would, I remember this, we kept a chart. He would measure my thigh muscles, like the circumference of my thighs, because I was a skinny kid who was trying to build muscle mass. And I would do insane running drills up hills and sprints and stairs to try to grow those muscles. And Mr. O'Kelly just believed that I could run. I could run fast. I, he was so funny, too, because I remember one weekend before a track meet, I went horseback riding with friends. And if you haven't done horseback riding in a while, let's just say it engages muscles you don't <laughs> regularly use. And the day or two after riding is excruciating because those muscles rebel. Those muscles are unhappy with you. And so when you try to run a race... After a weekend of horse riding, your muscles are in rebellion. They do not want to cooperate. And I remember vividly running at 200 meters the Monday after I'd been horseback riding. And I came in dead last. And the person who won that race, their time was slower than my slowest time I had ever run <laughs> in that race. I thought Mr. O'Kelly's head would actually pop off his body. Like his face was so red. His mustache was standing straight out from under his nose. It was like vibrating. And he yelled and yelled at me. And he was like, my girl, what were you thinking? What were you doing? How are you running? I mean, what is wrong with you? I'll never forget his great accent. He told me, you know what you look like? You are running like a sick camel. You look like a sick camel. <laughs> I told him, I'm so sorry. I felt like a sick camel. He's like, what was wrong with you, my girl? What was wrong with you? And I said, I, I went horseback riding this weekend, Mr. O'Kelly. I'm so stiff. And he was like, are you stupid? How stupid are you? <laughs> He's like, You're so stupid. I can't even believe it. I never want you to ride horses again before you run for me. And that is just like an entrance into his mind. Okay. That is like the baseline of Mr. O'Kelly. I remember my senior year, I didn't want to run track because I wanted to be on the cheerleading squad. And we'd have these giant athletic meets where as a runner all day, you know, you're on and off the field running in different heats. But my friends were like the cute cheerleaders flirting with the cute boys and leading the cheers. And I just decided that year I did not want to run. I wanted to be a cheerleader. So when we had tryouts, obviously, I couldn't get out of trying out because he knew I ran for him. But when we tried out, I just ran at the back like, really slowly <laughs> so I wouldn't qualify because <laughs> I wanted to be a cheerleader. And when I walked off, he just looked at me and raised an eyebrow and said, I'll see you at practice at three o'clock. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? I was at the back. And he's like, yeah, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling me. I'll see you at practice <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> I just like, could not get out of running for this man. So what's interesting about him is that like the other teachers, he knew that our mom was sick. She was away. They knew that. And at the time when I was a senior, my brother was in, I think he was probably a sophomore in high school at the time. Maybe he was a freshman. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But he was this little kid and he was really, he wasn't really into sports. He was much more into acting, theater, the drama club. Worlds that Mr. O'Kelly knew not of, okay? 
did not spend time there. As I have said in a previous <laughs> podcast episode, one of my brothers who was playing cricket for Mr. O'Kelly one year walked off the cricket pitch because he was going to be late for a play practice. Okay, like that is who my brother was. And there was a day at school when they came, kids came running to find me to tell me that something had happened to my brother. And I remember we were in between classes, we were changing class and kids came running up to me and were like, you have to come with us. You have to come with us. Josh got hurt, but Mr. O'Kelly saved him. That is what I remember them saying to me. And I didn't know what was happening. All I heard was that he was hurt. But at the same time, my friends didn't seem worried. They just kept saying, Mr. O'Kelly saved him. Mr. O'Kelly saved him. And I was like, what happened? And this brute of a man with his incredibly tender heart, I guess what they were doing during one of his PE classes is he was using the boys to move the stadium seating, the stands that line the, the rugby field. So these, you know, you know, those big metal stands, they're really heavy. I don't know why they were moving them, but they were doing it by placing branches, you know, logs under the stands. And you know how you roll it on the log and then you move one log to the front and then you roll further. As Joshua told me afterwards, Mr. O'Kelly had said to the boys, boys, listen to me, boys, don't be stupid. <laughs> don't go in front of the stands. Your leg is going to get caught. As the stand rolls off the lost log, your foot could get stuck, right? Before you can place the next log. My brother, being who he is, had not paid attention and the stand had rolled onto his foot and he was trapped by it. But what's interesting is to hear the kids tell the story of this teacher we all feared. Their faces, before I even got to my brother, they were just like beaming. Like it was like light coming out of their eyes as they were like, I mean, Joshua starts screaming, Lisa Joe, and Mr. O'Kelly, he just runs over and he grabs the stand and he lifts the entire stand off your brother's foot while screaming at the rest of us, boys, get him out of here, boys, get him out of here, put the next wood down. And that man lifted an entire stadium stand off of my brother's foot uh, and threw wow. out his back so badly that for years to come, he would struggle with back issues. Oh. But he rescued Josh. And it's an amazing moment for me because as kids, the two of us were very vulnerable. My mom was gone. My dad worked all the time. We managed all of our own business. You know, we drove to school. We walked home from school. We packed our lunches. We minded our time alone. We didn't have adult supervision a lot. And there was this moment where this teacher that we were all scared of intervened in this dramatic way to rescue my brother, <laughs> which really was a foretaste of a moment I had with him. I It's funny, I'd never tied those two incidents together where he rescued Josh and then I had a moment where he rescued me. Because the thing about him is he never once talked to me about my mom he never asked how I was doing. He was never like overly sympathetic or overly involved or touchy-feely or emotional ever, okay? He was the guy who expected me to show up, expected me to be fast, and then believed I would. And he had this very interesting technique when we ran the 4 by 4 freelay. Freelay, I just said. <laughs> relay. The 4 by 4 relay. So 400 is you know, 100 meters. You each run 100 Typically, you have your fastest runner run last when you run the relay. But he did all this research about how what you want to actually do is give your fastest runner the longest stretch of the race to run. And he figured out that if you 
I don't know if you know much about relay running, but when you receive the baton from the person who's the runner coming in before you, there's a strip of the track, a stretch that's marked that you have to receive the baton in between. And there are actually three lines painted on the track. The first line indicates where the runner has to have crossed that line before you can receive it. The middle line shows the center of that patch. And then the third line, you can't run past that line until you have the baton in your hand, right? So there's the first line marks when you have to have received it by. The final line marks when you have to have it in your hand in order to cross it. Mr. O'Kelly figured out that what he wanted to do is actually have, when you were getting in position to receive the baton, he did not want you on the first line. He didn't want you on the middle line. He actually made us count 20 paces back from the first line so that when you hit full speed, you're crossing the first line and you can receive the baton. And it actually gives that runner an additional like 10 meters to run because now you're running the entire transition zone. You're actually full speed running. You're not actually just receiving the baton. So everybody else would be receiving the baton in the baton transition zone, whereas his runner would be running full speed in that zone. That was his goal. And because I was his fastest runner, he had me set up to run that way. What happened that day was so strange. We were running on a turf track. So the track isn't grass. It's kind of that hard turf material that looks like rubber, but if you land on it, it's hard. And I was set up to receive. I was you know, my 10 paces back from the starting line, ready to start running full speed to hit that line and receive the baton from the runner behind me. However, this is not surprising. I feel like it's a true African thing. The people who were supposed to let runners know what lane they were assigned to had messed up. So instead of us all being in the same lane, the runner coming in was like in lane three and I was in lane four, which meant everybody at my post was in the wrong lane. And suddenly we see these runners coming toward us and they're not in the lane we're ready. So now we're like jostling to get into the right lane and I'm accelerating as fast as I can because I know it's my job to get across the line before I receive the baton. In the midst of the confusion, the runner coming in was coming in so fast and I hadn't taken off as fast as I needed to for that exchange because the confusion that she hit into me. So as she tried to give me the baton, she was too fast and I was too slow and her, her other hand hit into my back. And because I was starting to take off at full speed, I went flying. The, the combined force of her speed and her impetus hitting me and my speed just propelled me. And I basically did like a belly flop, but while <laughs> going full speed with my hands stretched out in front of me on this grit track. <gasps> and it pulled all the skin off my palms. Mm. I'll never forget it. I looked down at my hands and they looked like a cut of meat. Like it was uh. so gross. Like I could see the sinew, the muscle and I couldn't run. So then my poor runner like picks up the baton and keeps running. Like the, yeah. the, the, the yeah. coordinator at that station tells her, keep running, keep running. And I'm lying on the track. My hands hurt so badly and I didn't know what to do with myself. And like Superman, Mr. O'Kelly comes running out of nowhere, scoops me up in his arms and runs with me to the first aid tent while yelling, you okay, my girl, I've got you. You are okay, my girl. <laughs> and runs me into the tent to get treated. And he wasn't mad at me. He didn't reprimand me. He held my hands in his giant beefcake hands. 
and comforted me. While they very painfully picked out the track turf from out of my palms and wrapped my hands and bandaged them, and he went to find my father. And you know, there's something about having a champion. He was my champion. And it's only as an adult looking back, I really understand it. I think as a teenage girl, I was embarrassed. I felt awkward. My hands hurt so badly. I felt like I'd made a mistake, like I'd messed up. But it's never how he saw me. That entire high school period, he saw me as capable, as someone he trusted, and then as someone he protected. And I think, you know, we watch movies about this idea of a champion, you know, the champion who will fight on behalf of a nation or for a damsel in distress or whatever that looks like. But man, I think for the first time, I realized there are champions in our real ordinary lives. And sometimes they look like the sort of grumpy gym teacher everybody's scared of who, when it matters is the champion who rescues you um, when you don't even know you need rescuing. So yeah, that is my story of Couch Potato, former track star who was rescued by Mr. O'Kelly and his mustache. <laughs> Lisa Joe, I know it's a good story when I have laughed until I hurt and also cried a little bit at the end. That's so, so beautiful. Oh my goodness. I just have to warn our listeners, I do not have a story to match. I'm going to tell just a few things that came to mind as you were talking, but that story is perfection. Oh my goodness. And I can't believe I've never heard about Mr. Kelly before. I know. I know. I don't think about him that often, but as we were preparing for today and I'd said to you beforehand, I thought, oh my goodness, I have got to tell the story of Mr. O'Kelly. Mm, I love it. You know, Lisa, I wasn't going to tell a sports story, and but so I don't know how much time I'll spend on it. But you talking about Mr. Kelly reminded me about my swim coach in high school, uh, Coach Riley. So I wasn't a track star. I was a, I was a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer, and I think like you, I was I was the fast one. So just like in track, you know, you you there are um, different events and different distances. So I swam the sprint freestyle. So that meant that um, it doesn't mean I was necessarily the best swimmer on the team, but I was the fastest. And I was a breaststroker. So I too would anchor our relays and, and so on. But I have this vivid memory and it came to mind as you were talking. So Coach Riley, <laughs> he was a he was a Texas coach. He had coached football and baseball and somehow in the course of his career had ended up coaching swimming and primarily our girls swim team. And he had a mustache also. (laughs) He was this, he was this gruff Texas. Oh, oh. And he would, um, okay. So like your coach Kelly O'Kelly with his cigar, my coach would, oh gosh, I don't even know the proper language for it. He would, he would dip or chew. So he would have a wad of of tobacco in his like lower lip. (laughs) And he would have this, this cup that he would spit this horrid brown (laughs) juice into. So that was my coach. So I have this vivid memory of one of our meets and um, a race and I was I was in it was the breaststroke event. So if you know if you've seen breaststroke or swimming like maybe in the Olympics or something, you know that they almost look like little frogs <laughs> bobbing up and down in the water but but both hands are used to scoop the water. And then you push those hands out and you touch the wall with both hands and then you turn for the next lap of your swimming. And so one of the rules is that your hands have to touch the wall at the exact same time and together. So you can't touch with one and then the other and then turn or you'll be disqualified. 
But the tricky thing is, is that when you're swimming with that kind of momentum and you're trying to make that turn and you lose time in your turn, so you have to turn as quickly as you can and you have to um, do a good turn so that you can push off really hard from the wall. So sometimes what happens is you come into the wall and you're so focused on making the turn. And this is what happened to me in this particular race. I was so focused on turning that my hands went into touch. But I pulled one away to start the turn right before it touched the wall. So what happened is only one set of fingers touched the wall. The others pulled away just too soon, and I made the turn. And uh, in a race, at the end of each line or lane is a, a judge. There's one at each lane, and they are watching to make sure that you do your turn correctly. And if you don't, they raise your hand and that's a signal that you've been disqualified. So I did the turn and I didn't know if my mistake had been caught. And I'm, of course, my ears are underwater. I can't hear a thing. But when I got out at the end of my race, um, the person at the end said, I'm sorry, you were disqualified for that turn. And so I knew, ah, darn it, they saw. And then one of my teammates came like rushing over and said, oh. What just happened? Coach Riley was so angry. He kicked a chair into the pool. And I said, <gasps> no. what? So I went over to talk to him and, I, and my team surrounded me. And they were telling me, oh, Christy, you should have seen it. He got so angry at the judge that he kicked a chair. And I said, what do you mean angry at the judge? He's like, oh, oh, he was screaming at the judge, convinced that he had made a mistake, that you that you were fine. The turn looked fine to him. And he was so angry at the judge that he kicked this chair into the water. Lisa Joe, in that moment, I look back and I think I should have felt, I don't know, like embarrassed or like it was my fault. But you know what I felt? I felt as if I had seen for the first time how much my coach cared. He cared mm. so much about me <laughs> and my race and what I brought to the team. That when he thought I had been unfairly treated, when he thought that my race was going to be discounted, he was so angry and overcome that he, he lashed out and kicked a chair into the pool. And I, I felt loved. I felt appreciated. I felt, I felt like I had seen deep into something that in any other circumstance I couldn't have known. I couldn't have seen. And I feel like. I don't know. This was especially true for me growing up, but this maybe is a more universal story is that when we're young and people are telling us, I love you, I care about you, you matter. But I don't know if we always believe them. And so I'm sure my coach was affirming to me. I'm sure he was telling me, hey, I'm glad you're on my team. You're, you, you matter. You count. I'm sure my parents were telling me. I know my parents were telling me that. And yet I feel like I needed these instances where I was given almost like (laughs) some kind of visceral glimpse into what it, how they actually felt about me in order to, Mm. in order to appreciate my own value, my own worth. And, you know, I was this teenage girl and he was this older, gruff Texas coach. And it meant so much to me (laughs) that he cared enough to get angry and, and kick that chair into the water. Of course, then I had to go tell him, Coach Riley, I really did mess up that turn. (laughs) But isn't it wonderful to be believed that the benefit of the doubt is what he gave you? Yes. How 
It's so strange to me. We both told sports <laughs> stories today, and yet it's a powerful truth to be seen and championed, to have an unexpected yeah. hero who yeah. is yours, who's yours alone, who believes so much in you that he'll kick a chair or he'll grab you up off the track and run you in his arms, like across. And I just wrote, sports fields are big and there's like, there's the shot put guy and there's the guy doing high jump and here's my coach, like running through all of them, carrying me like a maiden in his arms, you know? Mm. There's something about that that imprints on us in a way that is worth remembering. It really is. And I'm just thinking here, you know, I'm, I'm the adult now. I'm I'm the person who, who has younger people in my life. And what would it look like? Like, is it possible for me to be a champion for someone else, to be a hero to someone else? Like, what would it look like for me to, to step up in those moments and reveal how I really feel about someone? I don't I don't know if that's possible, but I I think it might be. I want it to be possible. I want to pass that on in some sense. So I don't know. I hope I hope I get the chance. <laughs> I feel like you're giving me a fresh lens to look at and and this will be its own conversation in the coming weeks, but to look at sports for me these days because you know how many times in the past few weeks I have left you messages to say it's 9:30, I'm at a soccer field again. Like it's been really hard the end of the fall season particularly has been grueling. I have boys on many different teams and Yet, I think you're helping me see my role with new eyes. You know, when I think about my son, my oldest son plays on a travel soccer team now, and it's brutal in the pouring rain or the boiling heat they play. And we had a game this past weekend where the rain was coming like in sheets. You know how it comes from the side? It wasn't even coming down. It was coming from the side they could hardly stay upright on the field. And he played in that game drenched to the bone, to the core of his core. And when he got in the car, I had the heater going and I had warm clothes for him and food. And he sat there with his teeth chattering. And I had got out of that car and stood on the sidelines with my umbrella and my boots and my raincoat. And I had watched him. And so that when he got in the car through his chattering teeth, he could say to me, how do you think I played, mom? And I just think what a privilege to be there to bear witness, right? To come and stand in the cold with him and to say, you were great. Like I saw you and it was great. And here's why. And then to feed him a whole bunch of food because I think... <laughs> These will be defining memories for him. He will remember how much we showed up, no matter the weather, to see him. Mm -hmm. I know, Lisa Joe. my parents sacrificed a lot for my sister and I to be on the swim teams we were, the school team, the club team, every weekend spent at swim meets. And um, it might be easy to look at my life and say, well, what did it matter? What was it for? I didn't even choose to swim in college. I, I don't swim now. And yet I know that those experiences were so formative. They're so deeply rooted in me that even now, decades later, the, the most um, recurring dream that I have is being in the pool, being in a race, being in a really? meet. It's, yeah, yeah, even now, even wow. now. And in what context do you have that dream? Like, is it a stress dream? Is yeah. it a happy dream? I'm, I'm curious. What are you doing in the dream? It's a combination of things. Sometimes it's a stress dream. It's a fear dream. And in that sense, I think it's like I go back to those early experiences of hard things, of being challenged, you know, and swimming was a challenge. Um, so often they're 
they're almost nightmares, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's dreams about like feeling strong, like you said, feeling so strong and feeling um, like I could do anything and feeling in control. And I think that was um, something I received from my parents and my coaches is, you know, an early uh, experience with that. So <laughs> we could probably have a whole conversation about what do these dreams mean, but I think where we're ending up today is just um, how much the the sports arena can just show us about just every aspect of our lives and our relationships with others. So yeah, I'd look forward to telling more of these stories in the weeks ahead. And so I hope you guys look around your lives this week to just see who are the unexpected champions and heroes who have seen you this week. And and also to look at your kids with fresh eyes and realize you get to be their champion and they will remember. One day they will be in their 40s. <laughs> And they will remember the coaches with their mustaches, the people who cheered for them in the unlikeliest of ways that didn't conform to how society might think, you know, a supportive voice should be. But man, at the heart of the heart of those people is the truth of who they are and how they see us. And may we be those people to the generation coming up behind us. Did you enjoy these stories? Why don't you join the conversation? Take a moment and leave us a review. It's easy. Just scroll down in whatever app you're listening on, click on review, and tell us who you are, what you loved about us, and let us get to know you a little bit too. 